Coming up, an interview with Cynthia Erickson, a professor of psychology, on the challenges of suffering and the resources offered by Christian faith. After the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Dan Hummel on staff at Upper House and your host of the Upwards podcast. The topic of this episode is suffering, especially how to make sense of suffering and some of the tools, if that's the right word, for how a faith in God can help cope with suffering. Suffering can be personal. It can be suffering with others, with loved ones, friends and family. Or as many of us experience daily, we suffer with or because of uh, events far distant far distant from us, whether that's a war, a global pandemic, a natural disaster, or uh, systemic evils. Uh, suffering can be experienced on a variety of different levels for a variety of different reasons. There's a lot of ways we could go into the topic of suffering, but in this episode, we will look at it through the lens of the field of psychology. This episode features our own Dr. Susan Smetzer-Anderson, Upper House's senior writer and brand manager, as she talks with Cynthia Erickson, an associate professor of psychology and a chair of the Doctor of Psychology in Clinical Psychology program at Fuller Theological Seminary in California. Dr. Erickson has many articles published that are accessible on ResearchGate, which is linked in the show notes, and through her own faculty page at Fuller. And we at Upper House were made aware of Cynthia's work last year when we hosted a small event as part of a Templeton grant on trauma, science, and faith. And trauma is another topic that Cynthia has written and researched a lot about. We really appreciated her uh, insights at that event and uh, were excited to reach out to her for this conversation as well. The impetus for Cynthia's research that's talked about in this episode and is discussed right at the beginning of the interview is curiosity about how beliefs about God and God's involvement in suffering could help people cope with the grief of, of COVID-19 in particular and all of its manifestations socially. The conversation centers on a few forthcoming papers co-authored by Cynthia and, and others and then moves into a variety of related topics, theodicy, which is a term that literally means the justification of God, but tends to encompass arguments for why God permits evil in the world. They talk about theodicy. They talk about doubt and trauma and resilience and vicarious suffering and also explore messages of hope conveyed through God, through the Bible, uh, and felt in community. It's an honest and it's an interesting conversation, and we hope you'll enjoy it. Before jumping into the interview, which we will in just a minute, I want to highlight one opportunity at Upper House that just uh, was made available, and it's to join our fellows program for the fall 22 cohort. Our fellows program for UW students and recent graduates is now accepting applications, and we're really excited to be into the third year of this program and to be offering tracks on a variety of subjects, including biblical theology, art and culture, and the meaning of work. If you're a student or if you know a student who you think would be interested, check out upperhouse.org slash fellows dash program or just go to the upperhouse.org webpage and look for the fellows drop down uh, at the top. So uh, without further ado, here's an upwards conversation with Cynthia Erickson. It's my genuine pleasure today to speak with Dr. Cynthia Erickson. She is program chair of the PsyD program at Fuller Theological Seminary, as well as a professor there. And lately, she has been working on a paper with a colleague, Dr. Kenneth Wong, exploring the relationship between views of God's involvement in suffering and distress in the early season of the COVID pandemic. 
I also want to mention that Dr. Wong and three student collaborators, Krista Cowan, Mariah Conant, and Matthew Janu I knew I was going to do that. Janusic. 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 Matthew Janusic are writing this paper for a special issue of the journal Religion, which will focus on COVID-19. So, Cynthia, thank you so much for joining us on Upwards today. I'm happy to be here with you. So we are talking about suffering today, and I think it's a very current topic. I think it's safe to say that all of us know people who are suffering in some way, whether from an acute illness or some other form of distress. In addition, the scale of suffering happening in our world right now can feel overwhelming and challenging on many levels, especially emotionally and spiritually. Cynthia, your group at Fuller has been doing some really interesting research on suffering. Will you outline that for us? Yes, happy to. Um, It's been a real pleasure to be part of this project with my colleagues um, at Fuller. They actually collect the data early on um, during the the beginning of the COVID pandemic. And this was a group of students who were very interested in understanding how beliefs about God, beliefs about God's involvement in suffering um, could be a, a buffer, could be a point of coping or resilience in the face of this very new experience that we're all going through. So here we are two years in, this was very early on. So uh, there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear um, that we were facing at that time. And the students used uh, a measure called the Views of Suffering Scale that's um, by Hale Smith and colleagues. And it outlines the different ways that Christian faiths, other faiths, um, and the agnostic and atheist kind of views of how the divine is involved in suffering. And um, I'd love to take a minute to kind of talk through what what those views are. And um, also to just to sort of add the, the vocabulary word, vocabulary term of theodicy, um, because I think what we're going to be talking about is this idea of theodicy. And you can understand sort of in lay language that theodicy is ways to make sense of suffering in light of a God that is all powerful, all loving and all knowing. Um, that it's a theological term uh, for this, I, this kind of challenge that we have of understanding what, how God might be involved or what role God has in tragedy and suffering and pain for humans um, mm-hmm. when we're confronted with such difficult things. The research was looking at the different theodicies, the different ways of understanding suffering and how that related to outcomes um, at this time, early times of the pandemic, and the outcomes were COVID-related distress, so experiences related to fears about the pandemic, um, um, concerns about having access to the things that you needed, um, things related to the pandemic itself, and then the other outcome that was measured was anxiety, experiences of anxiety. So looking at the measure Um, there are 10 subscales in this measure. So 10 different ideas, different sort of specific ways of thinking about suffering. And six of them um, I would call, or we would call what would be kind of typical views, traditional views of God's involvement and God's um, presence in the midst of suffering. Um, And there are things like you know, soul building, that God intends suffering as a way for us to grow. Um, and that that experience, we suffer because God wants us to become better people. Okay. Um, and then there's also overcoming this idea that um, by having faith, God, we can overcome, you know, by praying and participating in our religious practices, we can overcome our suffering, um, that God will be, God will act to help us overcome our suffering when we have that faith. Um, a next one is this idea of meeting God in the midst of suffering or having an encounter with God. It's the subscales called encounter. And this idea that, that God is mysterious and it's in this space of suffering that we meet God, that we understand God a little bit better, that sort of because of the mystery that God, you know, that we don't really understand God, we can't really know what God is thinking, that suffering becomes a place where we find God and experience Mm -hmm. God. 
Then another one is this idea of God's power and that God is actually responsible for suffering. That, you know, God's all powerful and can do what he wants um, and he can change, you know, situations to alleviate suffering and that miracles can happen. Um, But that God's not obligated to end suffering and that God has also given puts limits on his own actions in human life because he's given us free will so that there's boundaries on God's power because of God's choices. Um, And then another area is this idea of providence, that everything we experience is something that God knows about and that God has planned and that God is involved in so that when we face suffering, we shouldn't necessarily resist it or um, interpret it as something that's wrong, but that God is in it with us and that he has planned that detail, even the difficult things that we face. And then the final one in this sort of area of traditional or what you might call kind of orthodox views, orthodoxy, orthodox views of, of theology is the idea of God as suffering God. Um, that when we suffer, God's with us in that suffering, um, that God's heart breaks when our hearts break, that he experiences it with us, not just that we encounter him, but that he's experiencing that suffering with us and is moved by it um, with us. Um, so those are the areas that I would call kind of traditional. And in our research, when we did the statistical analysis, we looked at the sample of people who filled out the survey And instead of looking at each subscale separately, we used analysis that's called cluster analysis, where you look at how people's responses cluster together in certain ways. So what we found is that there were three different types of clusters, so three groups of people. And one of them, and actually the largest in the sample, was the people who all scored higher on these six. Um, so that they were talking about or kind of expressing beliefs that God was active in suffering, that God had power and was loving, um, that one could grow through suffering. So kind of a, a, an active and more positive view of God's involvement in suffering. So that's one cluster. Um, then another cluster was related to this idea of randomness. So one of the other subscales is called random. And that's, you know, not... There's no divine involvement at all. It's just that bad things happen. Um, No one knows why. It's all random. Um, There's no purpose or underlying reason. Um, It just is sort of, it is. And so there was a group of people who scored highest on this um, subscale in our research. And then they scored lower on all of the other theistic um, kind of ways of divine ways of thinking about suffering. Then there was a third group. Um, the third group held beliefs or reported more strongly beliefs that we would consider not as orthodox. And they really centered on this idea as God as not loving, you know, mm-hmm. so an unorthodox um, subscale for the measure is that God could prevent evil, but God chooses not to because God isn't entirely good. Um, so this view of God as not entirely good, not entirely loving. Um, and then there's also this idea of God not being omniscient, you know, that, that God has limited knowledge of things going on in the world and that, um, God might be interested in, um, ending suffering, but God can't because God doesn't know, um, enough to kind of stop suffering. Um, and then the final area was retribution, this idea that the measure itself isn't for this subscale, isn't described with with divine or god language um so it's that individuals suffer because of their deeds in the past or individuals experience suffering as a result of their past wrongdoing so the idea that suffering is a retribution um, for bad things a punishment yeah um so it's interesting and and we can talk a little bit about this is that this last cluster this last group of people they scored higher on the unorthodox and that limited knowledge scale. Um, So the idea of God not being as loving or God not having as much knowledge, but they also scored higher on this idea of retribution. Um, And it does make me wonder if some of what they were thinking about too, is God is punishing 
um, that even though the, the items aren't phrased in that way, whether or not they were viewing that retribution as even something that might have a divine involvement. Um, so the way we labeled those, um, those clusters was that first one in terms of the positive kind of connection with God, God involved, um, good things, you know, God bringing good out of bad, um, kind Mm -hmm. of model that we called that the active cluster, that God's active in people's lives, um, and in that suffering and that, that things can change through God's work and God's love. Um, and then the, the random cluster was those that just didn't have any kind of connection to theology or theodicy that they were describing. And it was that, that suffering just happens in this random way. And then the third cluster, we decided to call passive that God was there, but God wasn't active or was even retribution um, retributive, or there was a sense of that. It was just karma involved in suffering. So those were the three clusters that we found. That's fascinating. Um, Before we go a little deeper into that, I'm just wondering, how did you all define your sample? Like, who did you research? Yes, that's a great question. It was um, the project happened out of a class. So it was a it was a convenient sample in that all of the students reached out and sort of started to develop connections with different people and asking, sending surveys out um, Mm -hmm. by the Internet. So it wasn't an intentional focus. It was just a community sample of people who were connected Mm -hmm. to the students or friends of friends or just sort of expanding that way. And it was an adult sample. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it wasn't necessarily people who would self-identify as Christian or non-Christian or be only churched people. This was some range of folks that were answering their questions. There was a range, but I think because it was coming from mostly connections with students from the seminary, Mm -hmm. most of the sample did describe themselves as Christian in the demographics. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an interesting point in that even people who are self-describing as Christian can still hold some of these beliefs that are not as orthodox or, mm-hmm. or, you know, views of God that might have God as not loving or not all knowing, um, right. or these ideas of randomness. Right. Um, so it's not completely out of the realm of the experience of a Christian to still have theodicies that have some of these different perspectives. That is what's really fascinating to me about this is when you're describing the first group, the people who hold to the more orthodox beliefs, I can hear that language happening in my head. And I would probably fall into that group of people like God will redeem the good out of this really bad situation that we find ourselves in. But I wouldn't necessarily expect other people who profess to be Christians to see God as really being limited. So I find this whole question that you're asking very interesting is where do those beliefs come from is and that's something we can talk about. Aside from their sense of God's character or presence being different in this three groups of people, is there anything else that distinguishes them from one another? The the group, the first group, the cluster, unsurprisingly, um, did report more religious affiliation and religious participation. Okay. Um, so that they they were more church going um, than the other groups, even though there there was still Christians in throughout the sample. Right. And the other two groups were they distinguished in any other ways? Not that not that I have data for. No. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's interesting. So really, the more invested they were in a church community and surrounded by people more regularly um, who hold similar beliefs than that strengthened their sense of God being good mm. is what I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. Particularly around suffering. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So our beliefs about God um, come from a lot of different places. And what do you find to be really influential in what we believe about God? Well, before, before we go on to that, I'd love to talk a little bit more about sort of the outcomes with the three groups. Oh yeah, that'd be great. So once we had the three clusters, the other things that I would say about what we tested, and maybe this is what you were asking for in terms of the differences in the groups, um, but I was thinking of more demographically or, you know, more the background information than actually what the results of the study were. Um, The results of the study, when we looked at how the groups differed across the outcomes, I mean, this is what was really fascinating is that the the group number one, um, so those that were in the active cluster, 
they had the lowest scores on um, distress related to COVID and the lowest scores on anxiety. Um, so they were the ones that were doing kind of the, the best, quote unquote. Um, and, and then the group that was past, or was random, so the group that was the random cluster, um, they had the most distress related to COVID. Um, so that in my mind, that was kind of this idea that if you don't have any kind of beliefs about suffering or an understanding of why a bad thing might be happening, that there's more distress related to that particular kind of event. Um, mm -hmm. Like, how do I make sense of it? Or what do I do with it? Um, how do I kind of move forward in the midst of this thing? And then the, the group that was passive, they actually had the highest scores on anxiety. And one way that we might think about that is if you have the view of God, if you have God involved in your suffering, but God's not actually good or God's not powerful enough to do anything about the suffering, um, or God might even be retributive um, and, be, and punishing, right. then it's not only do you have the distress of the, you know, the event itself or the, the pandemic itself, but then you have the distress related to this God that you don't, you can't really trust, but you believe in. Um, so this tension and anxiety that, that goes with having an, a, a more negative view or a more passive view of God's, God's presence. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought that was really important to kind of realize that there are ways that our beliefs about God's involvement in suffering had an impact on how people viewed a particular event, um, how they experienced it and their distress. I find that fascinating too, because in some ways I would have expected the second group, the random group to also be experiencing that similarly high anxiety. But if you believe that God may be punishing you for whatever reason or punishing your, in this case, it was a pandemic we were dealing with, right? So you have an, a country that is experiencing this and a world mm -hmm. that is experiencing this. I wonder if somehow that negative view may also translate not only about their own vulnerability, but also about the state of the world that we're living in. Mm. That they view it as deserving of some sort of punishment. Mm. So I was just a yeah. question I have, like, are they expecting to be punished individually? And it may not just be that, of course, because you have a range of items you are looking at. Yeah. But I think what you're, what you're naming is that, the ways that we view God's involvement in our lives in suffering in particular, we think about how we hold those all the time kind of, mm -hmm. and what some researchers, uh, Crystal Park has done quite a bit of research in the area of meaning making. Mm -hmm. And she would say, you know, like having this kind of global meaning idea, this global way of thinking about the world and making sense of the world you know, if you have these ideas that God, um, that God's out there, but maybe not trustworthy, you know, in terms of either might be punishing or may not be active, may not really care, may not be loving, then that global meaning means you bring that into how you interpret different situations. Okay. Um, and so that when you then go to that kind of experience, it's like, oh, well then does this mean that something's something else bad is going to happen? Or does this mean I did something wrong? Is God mad at me? Or um, can I really trust God? Or can I trust even my faith? Um, it might bring it, bring those things in, into a big question, which can lead to more distress and more anxiety, more pain. So I guess I'm going back to the question I was starting to ask earlier, and that is like, where do our beliefs about God start do they start when we're young children and our family system? And I've heard, you know, how your father treats you is related to how you view God. Um, I'm just curious where, what you think about that. Yeah, I think that all of the things that you named are really like where, where our beliefs begin is like we make sense of the world as we're growing up based on experiences that we have, things that we learn from family from a faith community, you know, from Sunday school, if you grew up in a church mm -hmm. and went to Sunday school, from stories we hear from others, um, from peers, 
um, you know, all of those, all of those messages sort of get played in. And then we start to kind of also build a logic. And this is what's, I think, really important to consider too, is the ways that we have these beliefs that we use to make sense of our experiences, but then our experiences might actually end up changing our beliefs. Right. You know, so it's this reciprocity, which also Crystal Park and some of her colleagues have have written around this reciprocal nature, you know, between suffering and trauma and spirituality is that our spirituality can help us understand suffering, but then sometimes suffering impacts our spirituality mm-hmm. um, in, that, in terms of how do I make sense of innocent suffering um, or situations that um, feel so burdensome that it's hard to understand or hard to believe that God's all loving if he allowed this thing to happen. Um, Right. And I think so it becomes it becomes something that I think, you know, maybe as uh, you know, as a a white American middle class woman, um, it's my first thought is like individualistic, you know, like where my thoughts coming from or my beliefs are coming from. But then there's also this communal aspect of I'm living it out, you know, in community. I'm in conversation with friends and with um loved ones and family members and and we're kind of building these belief systems together as we navigate things together. Right. And I also think as we're talking about this, we're being pretty logical and we're yeah. stringing our thoughts together and, you know, in a pretty organized way. But we're not always logical people. We're emotional people. We have um, mm. mental health, you know, that is sometimes better or sometimes worse on any given day. So then you add in the mental health piece of it and that's, that complicates it even further. Like if you yeah. struggle with depression or you struggle with anxiety, your belief system can be distorted by those things as well. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. And, and I think that that is one of the things that feels so important, I think, to articulate about even this project as well is that, you know, I can read through this list of um, the subscales and, and we can understand conceptually about these different theodicies. Um, and I think it's important for people to, to ask themselves, what are those core beliefs that I hold about God? Mm-hmm. Um, but that any given day or any given circumstance, those beliefs might be brought to bear on a certain issue or that, you know, that you kind of find comfort in them, or they might feel challenged where you're, I'm not sure I can really believe that God, you know, is with me in this because it feels so bleak or I don't feel his presence, you know, Mm -hmm. and that all of those things are kind of part of our experience. And And I think part of this dynamic of suffering, you know, that suffering isn't really a cognitive process, is it? No. It's very embodied, very embodied. Yeah. And sometimes it's like in a moment your life changes, right? And and so your belief system is can be really challenged by that. It can also be where you find your deepest comfort and, and your sense of identity. So um, I'm just reminded as you're talking about the importance of being with people who know you well, you know, being part of a community and not trying to manage all of your life all by yourself. Yeah. Um, because I, I think that isolation compounds suffering. That's very true. Yeah. And I think you're raising a good point too, um, that I'd want to really make sure that, that people hear is that I, I don't think that doubt is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that when we're confronted with suffering and there, there may be a season where we are really doubting God's goodness or God's power or God's love. Um, and, and it's just, it's, we can't grasp it. And it's, you know, it's, it's something that we're just kind of like living in this liminal space of, okay, this is how I grew up, or this is what I've always believed, but I can't believe it right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and and I've, I've done other research um, over the years asking some of those questions about the process when people have been in these spaces of after trauma and how they've experienced their relationship with God. And um, it was a research project that we did with people who do urban ministry work right. and asked, you know, having confronted violence in the communities where they serve or being, a, you know, a survivor of violence himself, 
how have they navigated their relationship with God after that? And what we found was that this really important difference between, um, I'm going to use vague profanity here, (laughs) Um, the difference between F you God and F God. You know, it was like Mm. actually having the, having the F you, like putting your fist up and sort of getting in God's face, very much like the lament, you know, the lament Psalms of kind of complaint and protest, Mm -hmm. the F you, like what's going on? This wasn't what you promised. You know, that that kind of doubt or that kind of question, um, that kind of challenge to God created, like it created an intimacy that actually could draw people through those times um, and, and actually keep moving the person towards God into that space, that encounter, you know, with God. Whereas those that experienced times where it was like, you know, forget it, you know, I'm done with you and kind of turn their back. Um, that, that moves away, you know, that's, that's leaving the encounter opportunity that's kind of shifting away. And that creates much more distance, um, and not the same opportunity for closeness and support, um, in this, and then can kind of compound because then that might actually then lead to leaving your, your faith community or other people that have been supportive, or you don't feel as comfortable with that group because you're you're moving away um, from your belief or from a sense of God. And so it just, it ends up kind of snowballing. Um, So I think that I just would want people to hear these, the dynamic of this, the stuff we're talking about, that it's, it's very much of, it's very relational. It's very, it's organic. It's, it's shaking your fist sometimes. It's not knowing sometimes it's, Psalm 88, which ends, you know, it's maybe it's better if I would have been dead, you know, I mean, like this, the sense of like, futility. Yeah. Of just here we are and don't know what to do with this. Um, I'm really glad you brought that up, especially about doubt, because one of the things I think is so important is that people have the freedom to ask their legitimate questions. And I find it, is not healthy for me to be in situations where there's like an assumed truth and that questions aren't invited. And I was reminded of a retreat I went on when I was in my 20s and the speaker um, was very dynamic and he asked a question that I freely answered and honestly answered. And he says, have you ever been angry at God and, and told God you're angry at him? And I said, yes. And I raised my hand and I was like the only person in the room who raised her hand and and he was like how could you do that you know he actually really and truly um Mm. kind of called me out for it and I was shocked because I'm like but if I don't tell the truth to God a I'm not fooling God he knows (laughs) how I really feel Mm. but it also does prevent me from digging into what is really happening, what is really true right now. And I can't draw any closer to somebody I'm not talking with. Right. So right. I I was really shocked, quite honestly, and a little embarrassed, but mostly angry that he had yeah. that viewpoint. Yeah. So just fascinating. I'm really glad you brought up the importance yeah. of asking those questions and kind of encountering yeah. what is um, really happening and, and all anybody needs to do is actually read through the Psalms mm-hmm. to see how many times the psalmist is angry at God and mm-hmm. protests to God. So it's actually biblical to, to do that kind of expression. It's, we, we don't get taught that very clearly often in our church communities and our traditions, um, but it is very biblical um, to, to protest God and to call God out um, on God's promises. Yeah. So God calls people out and we try to call God out when mm-hmm. we feel like we don't understand and we're hungry for understanding. And I think being in community again helps with that. Yes. Where we give each other permission to do that. Yeah. And I think the one thing I'm going to add, Susan, to that is Again, that's what's so amazing about the Psalms as both personal lament and communal lament. You know, that there are some Psalms that are very individual of, you know, the the individual's own pain or own fear. 
And then there are those that are clearly the whole community crying out um, and expressed, but it's also they were sung together in community. So there was both an accountability as you were kind of expressing your pain, accountability for maybe there were even some in the room who were part of the pain. You know, they might've been some of the perpetrators and the ways that that creates accountability. But then there's also a really important piece that what you just said really brought to my mind is the importance of witnessing. You know, that when we have deep pain, when we have deep tragedy and loss, it is really important for others to witness it and to be able to stand with us and say, this shouldn't be, it shouldn't be this way. This shouldn't have happened. Um, this isn't how, you know, God would have wanted it. And, and how do we kind of stand in that together and cry out to God and say, where are you in this? As you say that, and I realize I'm going off script a little bit here with the questions we were talking about with regard to theodicy, but I'm not sure the church is very good at this. Mm -mm. I, I think that we still like to look like we have it together when we go to church mm. and it keeps us from, I'm speaking personally and yeah. it's partly just the way I was raised, but um, no, no offense to my parents. It's just, I grew up wanting to appear competent and wanting to appear that I had my life together. I think when we go to church, that is still a temptation for people like me. Mm -hmm. So being in a church where honesty and um, people witness to the pain in their lives and literally share their stories, I think is actually very healthy. Mm -hmm. So do you have any stories of churches that do that? I think that there are different traditions that do that so much better, you know, and you think about the tradition of testimony and prayer meetings um, where people would, would kind of share their prayer needs and pray together. I, I will say that the evangelical church, if you think about evangelicalism, tends to focus particularly on the importance of scripture and the importance of what we believe. So you can kind of extrapolate that, that you can imagine if, if the emphasis is on believing the right thing, then when you're in situations where you have beliefs that may not fit what's orthodox, it's going to be scary to say them. It's mm -hmm. going to be much, feel much more threatening to, mm -hmm. to be open about that. You might even, it might feel threatening to yourself of like, does this mean I'm not a Christian anymore? Does this mean God doesn't love me anymore if I'm starting to think these things? And so, I, you know, I don't necessarily know that if um, traditions that are more social justice oriented or traditions that are more charismatic, if they're necessarily any better, um, I think that um, I think that we all really want to to show God's grace, and we all really want to show God's goodness. And sometimes I think we might think we have to like <laughs> pretend that it's all okay for God's sake, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, or for for our own sake, like you said before. I mean, we're not fooling God, but that somehow we it's our work to keep it together and be okay. Yeah. When, when you said that about churches don't do this so well, my, one of my first thoughts was I know in my church, it seems like it's the easiest thing to ask for prayer requests when someone is very sick, that somehow a physical illness is easier to ask, you know, for prayer. It's not as easy to stand up and say, you know, my, husband is depressed or, you know, to say, you know, my child has a substance abuse problem. You know, it's much more, it's much easier to say my colleague has cancer. Right. I, I agree with that. And I think, I wonder if part of that is we still are embarrassed about mental health issues. Question I have is how can you tell if your theodicies or your theodicy or a belief about God and suffering is healthy? Yeah, I think that the ways that I would think about this issue is not so much healthy or unhealthy, but maybe risky. Because I, I think about um, these pieces of if I'm holding on to a view of God as punishing um, or a view of God as, um, yeah, angry with me, then I'm at risk for kind of that withdrawal. I'm at risk for punishing myself, you know, maybe like 
like interpreting some of the things that are happening as somehow my fault um, when it's, when it might just be, you know, these kinds of natural consequences of life, or it might be an accident or all those kinds of things. But, but I think that those negative, those ways of understanding God's involvement that are less than helpful are, you know, God being present, but not powerful, God being angry and retributive. And I think potentially this idea of God having limited knowledge um, about us. So this sense of God could, but God doesn't really have enough knowledge to be able to do something um, that those leave us in places where we're maybe at risk for how we make meaning out of it and how we interpret our own responsibility around suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may be a risk in terms of how we reach out to our community, you know, and what, what response we get from our community as we share it. Or you don't reach out to your community because you think you brought all this onto yeah. yourself. Right. And I think that's, I think that's an important piece. Maybe if we kind of switch it on its head and think about instead of it being like, for me, when should I be worried about my own theodicies? Maybe people who are come in contact with those that are suffering, who are in positions of relation, you know, relationships, support relationships or pastoral care or other kinds of counseling sort of roles. Um, what are the red flags that you should be looking for? Um, and that's kind of what I would say is these pieces of, of God as punishing God as angry God as not powerful that those would be red flags I'd want to understand more about um, and walk with this person and be open to hearing all of those things, open to be a place to process. Right. Because one of the things that we are able to do, thankfully, is grow. Mm -hmm. And we can deconstruct the false ideas we have about God. And we can construct our faith more proactively and not just sit in what we currently sit in. So there's hope for anybody who has, um, and actually it's hope for all of us because none of us have it figured out. Right. Right. And isn't that the point? (laughs) Yeah. None of us have it figured out. I mean, I resonate with some of the ways you described, uh, an Orthodox belief system, but I won't pretend that when really bad things happen, that, I don't have big questions and I think I'm supposed to, to be honest, I don't think I should assume anything about a situation. So I think this kind of leads into a, a very current example. And that is um, I've been thinking about vicarious suffering in this case, it's a world away, but um, there's a type of suffering. I think um, that I'm wondering if we're experiencing here in, in the United States for, our Ukrainian brothers and sisters around Mm -hmm. the world. And of course that type of suffering is almost unimaginable to me Mm -hmm. having your, your world obliterated in some cases um, within a matter of weeks. So, but do you think we experience vicariously in this? Yeah, I actually, I, I really believe that, um, that hearing stories, seeing images, um, imagining, you know, whether it's the suffering of families trying to flee, you know, in the Ukraine, or it's families who have lost loved ones due to racial violence, or it's, um, Mm -hmm. you know, families in Syria um, that Mm -hmm. kind of were confronted by warfare there. I mean, that we we take that in and we're using the odysseys to make sense of that in ways that we may or may not be aware of. Um, and I think that maybe sometimes stories hit us strong, more strongly when we feel like they reflect some of our own story um, or when they're a loved one that we're close to or that we know really well. But I do believe that vicarious suffering, vicarious trauma is a, is a real thing. Um, it's something that we're navigating and we were navigating that for the last two years during the pandemic, as we watched both our own kind of threat, you know, raise and decrease and, you know, uncertainties and all of that kind of thing. And then watch the number of people who've lost li- their lives 
mm -hmm. um, due to the pandemic. Um, but we've needed to make sense of that. Like how, how do we think about the fact that the pandemic, you know, that a virus is part of God's creation? And, and, you know, what do we do with that? What do we do with, I'm going to get into to maybe thin ice here, but what do we do with science, you know, and God's, God's creation of the opportunity to think through and develop different scientific models or methods of treatment or care and, pro, and um, prevention, but that it's all really messy, um, but, but God's still present in it. Yeah, I was wondering about the escalation, it feels like, of what we're exposed to um, in terms of suffering in the world. Ever since television, it's, I think, become more and more visual to us what other people are experiencing. But now you layer on top of that social media and our ability um, all day long to tap into the world news and see things that are really hard to see. So I do wonder sometimes whether or not our systems are a little bit overloaded. I would say, yes, they are. I think we can mm -hmm. say that pretty clearly. Mm -hmm. um, in particular, right now, with the process of the pandemic um, and the ongoing kind of chronic nature of that, I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but I know that what's you know being reported from APA, the American Psychological Association, pretty consistently is just the the increase in anxiety in general, you know, around the country, um, particularly with young adults really struggling. There's the, an incredible increase in the need for mental health care. There's an incredible increase in um, the the need for um, supportive care. Um, people reaching out for medications, um, just anxiety and depression being something that's really critical. And, and I do believe that there's, there's questions about meaning and purpose that are embedded in some of those places. I mean, um, that we have questions about where is God in climate change? Mm -hmm. um, where is God? How do I make sense of God's involvement in the Ukraine? How do I make sense of God's presence during the pandemic? Where is God in the context of the ongoing racism and racial trauma that's part of our community's history, our nation's history and ongoing um, challenges? And those are important and big questions um, that, that our systems haven't gotten respite from. I think we're layering different experiences on top of that. And from what I understand, there is not enough health care for people needing mental health assistance. So I know that there was a long waiting line for caregivers um, mm -hmm. during the pandemic for people who were feeling the effects of the isolation. One thing I want to draw us back to is it's all right for us to admit that we feel overwhelmed. That's that's very true, I believe. What do we do to help ourselves get through this? I guess this is the essential question. So maybe we should change it to what do we do to help each other get through this? Right. Yeah. You know, um, because, you know, maybe the thing that we can do ourselves is to make sure that we are part of community, um, that we are connecting with others, that we do have people in our lives who we're honest with in that really messy don't know the answer, you know, don't know what's the outcome's going to look like kind of way that usually for me, it, that requires a lot of Kleenex and, you know, snot running down my face, <laughs> looking pretty, looking pretty miserable, but just having spaces to, to be in that together and to be honest with each other in that. And there's this amazing thing that happens. I think when we do suffer together is that there is, there's a grace in it that I truly believe that God shows up in those moments. And even if there's not answers, even if there's not healing, even if there's not um, something ex explicit, there's a sense of connection and wholeness that can unfold over time. And I'm going to switch from psychology to theology for a minute and just mention Walter Brueggemann's ideas of the Psalms. And he's written some amazing stuff about the Psalms. But one of the things that is kind of I've appreciated is he talks about the different types of Psalms, that they're Psalms of orientation, 
psalms of disorientation and psalms of reorientation. And, you know, disorientation is like life is good. You know, creation is the way it should be. Disorientation is the, the lament psalms, the protest, the crying out. And then reorientation is the, but I will trust in God. And I, you know, and I see his faithfulness and kind of the, the, that journey through doubt and through lament into faithfulness and God's and praise. And one of the things that Brueggemann says is that we as humans, that it's not really our job to somehow jump from disorientation to reorientation, mm-hmm. that it's actually, that that's actually the work of God that it sometimes can come in a surprise. Um, but when we look at the Psalms, there are so many, the, the vast majority of the lament Psalms do have that shift at the end, you know, yes. that in the expression of the pain, in the crying out to God together um, or alone, that somehow God works in it in a way to bring us back to God's faithfulness. Um, and I think that that's where I would say this, this piece of gratitude that, yes, I mean, practicing a gratitude, you know, journal kind of activity or, you know, remembering to become aware of the beauty that's around you. Those are really wonderful things and really important. But I would also say, make sure that you're lamenting because there's a way that God works in that lament to bring us to the place of gratitude, to the place of faithfulness. Um, and can meet us in an, in a different kind of way. Um, and I think that's where, you know, kind of coming full circle to, to these views of suffering that are more traditional about God's presence and God's suffering with us and God meeting us and kind of overcoming through our faith. It's, it's very active. It's not, it's not that the beliefs get us through. It's that the living, it's the living it and being present in it and being present with others and oriented and kind of a posture towards God, that is the, where the faithfulness comes and where the hope comes. Well, I think that is the perfect place to end this conversation. And I am so grateful for this time with you, Cynthia, and you've given me a lot to think about. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Susan. It was wonderful to be able to share and chat together. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.